Hello, you are listening to Maghribin Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, politics, art, culture, sociology, anthropology and many other subjects. This episode is part of Health and Humanities in the Maghrib Lecture Series, organized by American Institute for Maghrib Studies Overseas Research Centers, the Centre d'études Maghrebines en Algérie, CEMA, the Centre d'études Maghrebines à Tunis, CEMAT, in close collaboration with the Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies, Tallinn. It was recorded via Zoom on the 15th of October 2020 between Iran, Radford in Virginia, St. Petersburg in Florida and Tunis. In this episode, we welcome Dr. Brock Cutler, Associate Professor in the Department of History at Radford University, presenting a podcast entitled Bread and Circuits, Illness, Food and the Course of Empire in Algeria. Dr. Adam Guerin, Associate Professor in the Department of History at Eckerd College, moderated the lecture and debate. To see related slides, please visit our website www.themagrebpodcast.com. So, hi everyone, welcome to the American Institute for Maghreb Studies uh, third lecture in its new Health and Humanities uh, in the Maghreb series, uh, organized by AIMS's Overseas Research Centers, the Centre d'études Maghrebines en Algérie, uh, CIMA, and the Centre d'études Maghrebines en Tunis, CIMAT, in close coordination with the Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies, Talim. Uh, my name is Bobby Parks, and I'm the director of CIMA, located in Oran, Algeria. The aim of this series, which is clearly inspired by our times, is to examine how different scholars, authors, and disciplines of the humanities explore issues of public health, sickness, and disease in the Maghreb in both the contemporary period, but also in the long durée, to give us a little bit more perspective of illness in our times. Um, this series builds from a series of past and ongoing activities at our centers in the Maghreb, notably the 2011 AIMS Conference on Public Health, and the ongoing Health and the Humanities and the Social Sciences series organized between CIMA and the Unité de Recherche en Anthropologie de la Santé at the University of Oran. Uh, the, first, uh, seg- uh, the first semester of this series, uh, we're specifically highlighting the research of former AIMS fellows, all of whom did doctoral research at one of the three ORCs. And beginning in January, we're going to open it up to the larger academic community. Uh, we're happy that uh, so many of you uh, were able Well, to join us uh, today for this third uh, series, the third lecture in this series, especially given sort of the fact that we're in the middle of Mesa and we're all zoomed out. Uh, today's lecture by Brock Cutler was titled Bread in Circuits, Illness, Food and Course of Empire in Algeria. And it's happening on, on this day, which is Tunisia's evacuation day, which is a national holiday here, commemorating the departure of French troops from the strategic port of Benzert uh, and that at a tremendous cost. So today we're really happy to welcome Brock Cutler, historian at Radford College, whose talk will be moderated by Adam Garam, historian at Eckerd College. Both are historians working on modern uh, French colonialism and both hold a keen interest in the intersection between imperial domination, violence, space, and environment. And in many ways in the tradition of uh, established North African historians and geographers such as Jilal Sari, the venerable uh, Algerian uh, geographer. Uh, without further ado, I will pass uh, the virtual microphone or the microphone uh, to uh, my good friend, Adam. Adam. Thank you, Bobby. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Brock Cutler. Uh, I had the great fortune of doing my PhD work with Brock and with Patricia Goldsworthy, who's also here. Um, 
or was a moment ago, uh, at the University of California. There she is. Thank you, Patricia. The University of California, Irvine. Um, Brock is, as Bobby said, an associate professor at Radford University in the Commonwealth of Virginia in the United States. And he has a range of publications in social, spatial, and environmental history of North Africa. Uh, and his book manuscript is under review currently with the University of Nebraska Press. Uh, and I can say without reservation that the world of North African studies will be far richer when we see that manuscript or that monograph. So I'm greatly looking forward to that. I guess, you know, by way of short introduction, I would just like to point out an element of Dr. Cutler's scholarship that I've always found quite appealing is his ability to rethink the basic contours of colonial relationships, really, you know, linking the so-called metropole and overseas spaces in really new and kind of inventive ways. Uh, so I think he challenges us to rethink even the basic understanding of what is a border or a connection. And I think ultimately challenging us to rethink what is a colony and a metropole. Uh, and I think this work we're gonna hear today gets at some of these questions in, in really interesting ways. Um, I could go on, I could extol the virtues of Brock Cutler, but I think I'll just pass it over to him and I, I look forward to the discussion. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you, Adam, for that and for not extolling any more virtues, uh, however you might've thought of them. And also thank you, uh, thank you to Bobby for the introduction and thanks to, uh, to Ames and, and Sema and Samat, uh, Bobby and Larissa and, uh, and the whole team. Uh, Kareem, I hope he's doing well with the new child and, uh, and Miriam I saw here a minute ago as well. So thank you guys for the in invitation to come and, and present this. Um, <clears throat> without further ado, I'll, uh, I'll get into it. So, or actually one further ado, I am gonna, um, I'm gonna share some pictures with you. So I'll just start that now. I believe I can share the screen, uh, yes. Um, and throughout, if you, um, so this way you also don't have to just focus on my face the whole time. So uh, there's, there's a benefit. So I'll get to a couple of images that I wanna show you throughout. Um, and in the meantime, I kind of have this placeholder image um, so you can ignore it or pay attention to it as you will. So I wanna start with a story. Uh, reports came into the municipal authority that something strange was afoot in Algiers in the spring of 1869. People were ill but the cause was unknown. Drought, locust invasion, disease, and decades of settler colonialism had led to the deaths of some 800,000 people in the previous half decade, but this appeared to be something different. Concerned about disease among settlers, the city investigated. It turns out that all the sick people had been getting their bread from the same bakery. The authorities commandeered some loaves from the bakery and hired a chemist to experiment. That chemist found in the bread notable proportions of oxidized lead and zinc. Further experiments around the bakery found the same substances in the oven of that bakery. Um, looking for an explanation, the city investigators checked the material used as fuel for the oven, and there they found their agent. The bakery had been using treated wood and assorted construction debris not usually employed in bakery ovens. The chemical preservatives from these materials had leached into the loaves during baking, and from there to the eaters, making them ill. This was no ordinary construction debris, however. It came all the way from Paris. Checking the records, the investigators found that it came from the demolitions of Paris then underway under the direction of Baron Georges Haussmann. The debris of modernizing metropole of the modernizing metropole was poisoning the colony. Now, I would say that that divide metropole colony with a slash in between it was not as firm as, as the slash might suggest. The boundary between the two was in fact produced in instances like this one. What is the colony if not the place where toxic metropolitan refuse ends up? So circulation of goods, people, ideas, and debris in this instance created a system in which differences could arise. Those differences could be repeated and through that repetition produced the growing divisions that then defined imperialism. That is the divides that supposedly define imperialism, metropolitan colonies, safe and dangerous, healthy and sick, 
colonized colonizer inside and outside really were the products of the circulation that created the system in the first place. Without that system, without the pieces and elements pulled into relation, there would be no way to insist on meaningful difference. The gap would be too wide for the differences uh, to carry meaning. So as the story of poison bread suggests, these divisions were not stable. Outsides became insides here as rubble from modernization projects in the imperial capital cleaved to the interior chemistry of colonial bodies. That they were colonist bodies as well uh, creates yet another potential division, another border within this eco-social system. Uh, here in a lecture series about health and humanities, I want to take the opportunity to think through some of the ways that ideas about health and illness, about inside and outside, play with concept of interiors, exteriors, and the circulation that bounds them, especially uh, within the political structures that depend on the idea of division and bifurcation. Um, and in my mind, that means imperialism and the project of modernity. This illness, which we now know was lead poisoning, appeared during a period of extreme crisis in Algeria. Three decades of settler colonialism, an extractive and appropriationist colonial regime, and a racialized legal and social system combined with extreme upheaval in the climate system to produce a historic crisis. So tree ring data shows us that the period from 1860 to 1881 saw unusually arid conditions. And within that, the period from about 1865 to 1870 was the driest period in the geologic record. Uh, that's since been overtaken by the early 2000s and a couple of times since the 2000s actually. Um, and what we're talking about is extended periods of drought. There are often single year drought, single year um, arid periods, but uh, rarely multi-years in which um, the drought continues. So in these five most extreme years, 800,000 Algerians died of starvation, typhus, cholera, and exposure. At the same time, we have the imperial system was such that Europeans could, according to one observer, skate by relatively unscathed through the, the crisis. So what was called a natural disaster was really an eco-social one. And I would say the two cannot be separated. Um, I wanted to show here uh, quickly just one here. This is a, a, a reproduction of a painting by Gustave Guillaume uh, from 1869 called Famine in Algeria. And I won't comment on it uh, too much because uh, of time. We could get back to it if anybody wants, but I do want to point out uh, the key feature to me is right back here, this hand in the wall reaching through the window, um, a kind of lighter hand reaching down and I think uh, uh, reaching down a loaf of bread uh, to the people uh, in the street. Now, to me, you know, this brings the question, what, you know, is it, is it race? Is it class? Is it health? Is it all of those things that builds the wall between the people on the street and their kind of faceless benefactor in, in the inside? So there's a bunch of questions we could act, uh, ask about this, but this is one of the ways that kind of the, the imagery of uh, famine, of disaster percolates through this whole, uh, this whole period. We also have Another, yet another image, this is um, uh, a sketch from uh, the Lady Herbert's illustrated um, contemporary Algeria uh, from 1881, but talking about the famine uh, in the 1860s. And yet again, we have our kind of informal agents of empire, the missionaries here, out distributing bread. Once again, the kind of agent of, uh, of civilization here is the bread being given over to these kind of skeletal uh, figures. And we could ask a number of questions about these images, um, but I think they're kind of more evocative um, than anything. So uh, in the midst of this disastrous period, a few handfuls of settlers in Algiers got sick. Why focus on them? 
who cares about them? I think that the crisis and this kind of bread at the center of the crisis could help us see some of the contours of the imperial system more broadly. In a context of massive upheaval of epidemics and famine, there are also smaller scale events uh, like this localized illness. The broad scale and uh, social and ecological calamity underway in Algeria had huge effects measurable on the scale of populations, measurable on the scale of tree rings and historical climate periods. It also had small effects like the hardship of fuel procurement for bakers. Those small effects can sometimes be as illuminating as the larger ones, or rather it's only in the context of these large massive social, social upheavals that the small issue of poisoned bread could come about in the first place. And perhaps only within this context that it would pass to us historically. I think often of I, uh, a Niall Green uh, phrase, the textual density or a textually dense site uh, is an important one to have, or David Arnold talking about famine as opening up the historic record, uh, historical record to things that otherwise wouldn't have made it. So while I focus here on a few people getting sick, I'm less interested in those particular people than I am in the ways that finding out about them and their illness exposes other interesting connections and divisions within this imperial ecosystem. Um, as Adam suggested, <clears throat> uh, I'm interested in asking where the colony is or where imperialism is. It can be most anywhere, I think, and it's defined uh, by the divisions that separated off insides from outsides. It's within the borders drawn by imperial cartographers, uh, that's imperialism. It's in the definition of people as inside or outside of the empire. And it's the expulsions that enforce those definitions. But it's not only there, imperialism is also inside and within those borders. It's in Paris, it's in Algiers, and it's in people themselves if we think of ethnicity, if we think of race, class, health, these things that are supposedly interior are actually manifestations of a larger uh, social process. The origin of the colonist illness lay in the desire to modernize the capital in an imperial form, the demolitions necessary for that imperial vision of modernity and the circulation of the resultant debris through the imperial body. <clears throat> the illness also depended on the human need to eat even during an ecological crisis and the differential effects of that crisis on bodies across the imperial space as Algerians bore a larger burden than the settlers. Uh, the discomfort of fuel shortage and poor victuals translated into death when you move across the imperial border of belonging. So the people on the inside get hungry and the people on the outside get dead. That bordering kept the colonies separate from the metropole and kept the colonists separate from the Algerian. We see here how the larger division that between colony and metropole was achieved through the evocation of difference in instances like this. Imperialism achieves its ends by transforming the spatial and material artifacts of social relations into constitutive debris. It breaks society down and then builds a new model uh, from that. <clears throat> the metropole is where the, an explosion of creative destruction produces modernity and the colony is where the exhaust of that burst ends up. Um, so uh, what I'm saying, I guess, is that difference is important uh, and differences are created in many circumstances. How they are repeated, uh, how they then stick in the mind uh, and continue to perform the division is the key to me. In this respect, food has long been used as a marker of difference and as a repeatable marker of difference uh, of the strangeness of other cultures and the superiority of one's own. If we look to travel writing uh, in the early modern period, <coughs> uh, we see that there, uh, there's an insistence on uh, the importance of food and uh, culinary difference as cultural difference 
In fact, there was uh, manuals um, in the Enlightened per period that talked about how to, how to write a good travel narrative. And what you did was focus on food. That was one of the instructions. Um, so in that respect, uh, people writing about Algeria and the difference uh, between Algerians and uh, French, for instance, uh, were really conforming and extending the same in, uh, Orientalist discourse um, but at the same time, it's not so simple. Uh, there's not just one model that was applied, but rather new socio-ecological situations and new meanings that arise because of new interactions. Um, <clears throat> as with other imperial divisions, the repeated evocation of difference was performative in certain respects. It created the divide that it purportedly described. <clears throat> so that while there was a material difference, there certainly was in the way flour was consumed on the Northern and Southern shores of the Mediterranean. That difference only had the cultural meaning of demarcating different civilizations when repeated according to a particular logic, and I would say in a particular imperial logic uh, of division. So these textures of self-understanding that come about when thinking about food are tied to the way we consume to sustain the body. Every culture, society, community has slightly different ways of periodizing the performance of sustaining consumption. Seasons for important crops, the time it takes to process plants into usable food, the actual preparation of food and meals and the way we eat. <clears throat> All of these temporalities contribute to a kind of periodicity of the body. Now Marx had it that periodicity had to do with the rhythm of social reproduction based on the material conditions of the reproduction of social power, uh, specifically with the seasons and the season, seasonality of, uh, of particular crops in Northern Europe. Um, so food and different food is more than just a way to sustain the body or a marker of cultural difference. It's the point at which social reproduction meets bodily reproduction, <clears throat> where the individual becomes part of the eco-social world. That relationship is shattered in famine, in migration or dislocation, and for our talk with the ingestion of poison. <clears throat> that, uh, that moment uh, where the body becomes part of the eco-social world is, is broken as the world then uh, doesn't do what it was supposed to do in the body. In our case, that it was poisoned bread uh, makes the poisoning all that more disruptive to this imperial periodicity of the self. Um, it's the defining staple of French civilization itself that is poisonous. <clears throat> so I wanna turn uh, briefly here to wheat and bread and the unities and divisions that they allow across this uh, space. Um, wheat is central to the shared culture of the Mediterranean if we could agree that there is one. I'm, I'm not I'm making any claims on that point. But Braudel made it part of his eternal trinity along with vines and olives as the thing that define the Mediterranean. <clears throat> um, the part of North Africa that would be Algeria uh, had of course produced wheat for a very long time. Um, and while there's a stereotype uh, you know, going back a long time about the importance of corsairing of piracy in North Africa, in fact, um, it's really this century of wheat that brought that to an end. That's from Lemnoir Marouche. Um, the century of wheat is, um, the rise of uh, wheat growing and wheat export allowed for the decline of corsairing in the 18th century, especially, and created a new kind of situation in which um, North Africa and specifically Algeria was a wheat exporting region and not, you know, not the region of piracy. The export of this wheat tied Algeria to the whole Mediterranean, but specifically to France. And it created a kind of system that helped define each side. The French love of bread was made possible through the wheat fields of North Africa, and this is before uh, our kind of colonial or imperial relationship uh, took place. From 1710 to 1830, um, some 260 million kilograms of wheat went from Algerian ports to Marseille alone. And yeah, that sounds like a lot of wheat. And in fact, it was a lot of wheat. 
Algeria was producing a lot of wheat and France needed a lot to feed a growing population with a culturally specific food it desired, that's bread. So Algerian wheat uh, had a kind of long history in tying together a, a system and it goes back of course to before the imperial situation. But even after that, into our period of the 1850s, 60s, 70s, and beyond, even into the 20th century, Algerian wheat was very important in the Mediterranean. And it was praised by colonial boosters and their partners in the press. Uh, and there's a bunch of, you can find um, a ton of people talking about how great Algerian wheat is. Um, I won't read all of these here, but um, in the markets of Italy, Algerian wheat is generally preferred because it is the base of the very best macaroni, uh, which I thought was great. But the point is that, that Algerian wheat was a colonist dream. And by the time that this kind of imperial relationship started and had matured into the 1850s, 60s, and 70s, the growing of wheat uh, was really an important part of uh, what tied these regions together. Uh, as one booster put it, on this measure, Algeria is more than a territory connected to France. Here, the wheat is better than in any other country takes less care to grow, more of it grows, it keeps longer, leaves less bran on milling, produces more flour, and makes a bread more nourishing. So to repeat the phrase, because of the importance of bread and wheat, quote, Algeria is more than a territory connected to France, end quote. Algeria is France because it produces wheat that France and French uh, people want to use for their bread. Uh, so this is the kind of idea of uh, how wheat is connecting these regions together. It's not just wheat production that tied Algeria to France, but also consumption of bread. And I, I do want to uh, take a moment here to, um, here's the image uh, from the poster, uh, Zouav giving his uh, bread to a, a poor Arab. And I think this is a great, um, a great image. Here we have a European soldier by this time, the 1870s and 1880s, Zouavs would be um, Europeans and mostly French people. So a soldier in this kind of, Oriental uh, regiment giving bread to a poor Algerian or, or a poor Arab, a barefooted young girl with her mother. So here I think is a civilizing role of bread right there. We have, we have the civilization brought to the other, the, the Arabs by the military, by force, but it's a beneficent kind of force. He's kneeling down and offering something. Um, but nevertheless, the kind of threat of that is there as it's the soldier himself. Of course, he's giving, handing over civilization and bread is civilization here to the Algerians. I think that's a great image. And it's also, uh, we can think about the fact that it's, uh, it's Algerian women who are taking bread that accept the civilization uh, of the French here. Arab men were you know, always cast as too lazy or indolent or fanatical to actually be able to be the vector of civilization unlike uh, Algerian women. And so I think that's a really telling, uh, telling part. And that's why I, I picked this as, uh, as the background to the, the poster. I think it's a really uh, telling image. So bread was important in Algeria, um, albeit in different ways than France. So we had a technocultural ecology meant that the types of milling, kinds of flour produced, the method of preparation, types of cooking, and the significant of use, significance of uh, the uses of bread were all different, of course. Nevertheless, it's still bread. And well, the key that we'll talk about here is that uh, at least for, uh, for in the colonial period, Algerian bread was bread that was cooked on a stovetop, on a skillet, and not something baked. So this is a wheat bread, but it's a different wheat bread. Algerian breads were kind of bread, but not quite, kind of like Algerians themselves were kind of people, but not quite people. For that difference to be meaningful, we have to have it close enough to, to recognize. That is, we have to have a kind of categorical sameness. It's all bread, we recognize that it's all bread, 
while there's a specific difference, one is baked and one is uh, cooked on a stovetop, and that, uh, that sameness, the categorical sameness, makes it possible uh, for differences to be meaningful. So differences were about bread, but bread was also a metonym for all kinds of other things, uh, notably race and ethnicity. I, for time, I'm going to skip over a little bit, but we can see uh, in a lot of travel writing that bread would often lead on to the kind of racial characteristics of the people who prepare it. And that was a common thing that came up. Um, you move from bread or from some uh, culinary uh, element into uh, the kind of people that are making it and, and what that means. So the culture of bread consumption was a field of performance for imperial divisions. Um, I want to note uh, that there's a description by Jean-Gabriel Capot in 1856, uh, differences between Arab and European workers. And he says this, quote, the Arab worker has fewer needs than the European worker, the French worker above all. The Arab sleeps in a hovel of branches and dried mud or in a camel hair tent. He lives on water, a little milk, fruit, bread, and what bread with an exclamation point at the end. He didn't mean that exclamation in a, in a positive way. So the one item that gets exclamatory treatment in this whole list of differences between the bad Algerian and the good French is bread. And uh, in a book that's devoted to uh, arguing with that France needs to commit more resources to making Algeria French, um, <clears throat> he has to indicate that uh, Algerians, they eat some kind of bread, but it's not real. It's not the bread of, of France. Again, we had a categorical similarity with a specific difference. So the key to the difference was how it was made. Uh, and in 1869, History of the Bakery, uh, written by a member of the Imperial and Central Society of Agriculture of France, reported that the oven was the last step in the evolution of baking, not one step, the last step in the evolution of baking, and that bread properly called is always baked. All other forms of bread were less evolved and should maybe not even be considered bread at all. And this came up over and over then, uh, uh, also in travel writing in Algeria, in which um, for instance, in the Kabylia, uh, Arsène Bourtoy, who is writing about his travels there, says that there's no trace of civilization in Kabylia, or at least advanced civilization. And the very first thing he lists in, uh, in explaining why there's no civilization is because uh, they cook their bread on a stovetop and, not, and there's no bread oven to be found. So describing voyages around Algeria in the 1850s, in particular visiting military installations and uh, some villages, Eustache Alexandre Caron often mentioned bread, uh, mostly noting the lack of good bread to be had. But it's his description of a visit to Roman ruins around Satif that uh, interests me and I, I just wanna mention here. So his party was out where there were no people just coming up to the entrance of the old Roman city. And what did they see blocking their way or maybe inviting them in but a quarter loaf of French bread lying on the ground. How peculiar, they thought. He went on to say that they later found out that people come from Satif to quarry stones from the area, so that probably explains the bread. But what's interesting to me is that here in a description of the great work of the Romans, Caron places in the narrative a bit of bread. And not just any bread, but French bread. He names it French bread. The ancient civilization of the Romans marked by their, the ruins of their edifices and the contemporary civilization of the French marked by their bread. The two imperial powers come together as French bread here marks the actual entrance to the ancient imperi uh, Roman Imperium. I think it's a great little image there. So this is obviously not an exhaustive study of, uh, of the ways that um, alimentary difference or uh, uh, culinary difference had uh, cultural ramifications in, uh, in Algeria, but I, I, uh, I think it's enough to establish that 
In fact, wheat and bread were shared and shared enough to be meaningfully different. And I'll quickly mention a few things about the oven and its importance to baking because the oven is of course an important site in our story. Um, the oven and its fuel that kind of liberates the, the toxic potential of lead uh, to poison people. So the oven was really a boundary of civilization in a lot of ways. And that boundary here in the 1860s also marked modernity. So people, uh, as we've been talking, see the oven as the thing that, uh, that defines how French civilization is different than Algerian civilization, at least in terms of uh, what we eat. But like other uh, markers of the modern, it takes a lot of energy uh, to run it. Heating a relatively large chamber to somewhere around 500 degrees Fahrenheit for the hour it might take to bake a loaf uh, takes more energy and thus more fuel than heating a pan or pot for a quick saute. This is why in most bread baking cultures, there's a communal oven. Only the very materially wealthy could afford the fuel necessary to fire a private oven. In order to make it worthwhile, there had to be a sizable number of people per oven. And since I wrote this joke out, I'll just say it. It takes a village to raise a loaf. Even then, to save on fuel costs, uh, usually the oven was only fired once a week and often only once every couple of weeks. Uh, if you look around France, um, the, the most common type of a loaf cooked out in the villages was a miche, a three kilo giant loaf of bread that would last two to three weeks. So it's not that, uh, that ovens are common or that they're used all the time, but the thing that they do is made to signify a whole range of different cultural divisions. So bread ovens in mid 19th century France and Algeria were of a variety of designs, some more rudimentary than others, but the thing that they all had in common was that they were all single chamber. That is the, the baking dough that was turning into bread and the fuel uh, that was heating the oven uh, share the same chamber. Some of them had little alcoves in which you would put the fuel, but it's all in one space. Um, I am not gonna talk a lot about it, but uh, the importance of the oven for maintaining Frenchness was very important, important enough for the French military to go to great lengths to create a mobile bakery that could, or a mobile oven that could be set up in, in under an hour and a half and taken down with bricks. Here's one from the Crimea. Um, you can see uh, here it is um, under construction. Later it would be buried here, but it only takes a little bit to set it up. This being key to keeping morale among the troops high uh, because uh, establishing yourself as French and maintaining that important Frenchness uh, for fighting meant having uh, bread and people would, uh, would mutiny if they didn't have their bread. So there's one from the Crimea, uh, here's one in Mijara. Um, and this one's harder to see, but the, the ovens I believe would be down here. And then you see other apparatus of, uh, of baking over here. This is uh, Safsafat in, uh, in Morocco. Here is the actual, you can see this one looks more like the oven that you would picture. But the key is that these were some of the first things to go up uh, when the French went anywhere because the oven was so important. <clears throat> now, ovens were also important in other areas. This, uh, this photo from 1861 is from the uh, Hodna region and it has, uh, it's just titled the Boulangerie, which you can see here is an oven, uh, a clay um, oven there with people sitting out front. Uh, you can see a little peel there for sliding the loaves back into the, the heating oven. So ovens were important and they were an important marker of Frenchness, even if they weren't necessarily always just French. Um, the key was that they took a lot of fuel. <clears throat> and in colonial Algiers, that fuel was brought in daily by people from the surrounding region, that area green with wooded hills and, and mountains. 
Benjamin Thomas evoked this nicely as, uh, quote, the strings of donkeys or camels carrying their daily loads of firewood from distant hills to towns and villages. Uh, this was never enough wood to supply the demand of a city like Algiers. And so there's also an active trade in fuel coming to the ports, fuel minerals, which really means um, uh, coal was a thriving import item and fuel wood as well. We know, of course, that there's all kinds of other things uh, that get used as fuel, as our bakers have shown us. So the generalized social disruption that accompanied the starvation disease and mass migration of the 1860 to 81 period affected all parts of life. Uh, and that included people's ability to heat homes and, and hearths. Part of what made any social crisis difficult was the lack of fuel. And here the people leading those donkeys and camels uh, had largely died off by the 1860s, disrupting normal social reproduction. And the people who probably depended most on them were the people who had le least access to ports and uh, the fuel materials coming in from the ports. Um, this also affected the uh, baker's ability to fire their ovens. Um, <clears throat> and so they turned to broken down debris from the modernizing demolitions of Haussmann's Paris. And it's there, Haussmann's Paris, that I want to turn now. Um, just a quick word before we decamp Algeria. Uh, the differences is what I'm saying would not have been uh, meaningful, uh, important enough to be meaningful if they weren't already kind of close together. The proximity um, allows the, the meaning to, uh, to arise. So bringing together, I'm saying, I guess, is, is an important part of tearing apart. Um, this is why I think, and I've said before, I'll just suggest it here, I think cleave is a good word for the imperial process. It carries these two opposite meanings to both to tear apart and to bring together. So the process of imperialism in the 19th century cleaved the world together as it also cleaved societies and ecosystems apart. Or I don't, maybe it works the other way. And in cleaving socio-ecosystems apart, it made it possible for the parts to cleave together in new meanings, a new modern imperial ecosystem. But either way, this idea of rending and tearing, but also of bringing together is what I think is apparent in our process um, uh, of Parisian rubble making it to Algiers. So there would not have been debris to send to Algiers if not for the imperial visions of Napoleon III and Georges Haussmann making rubble in, uh, in Paris. And here's what we're talking about. This is a, an image from um, Charles Marville, uh, who famously took a bunch of photos of the, the process of, of Paris in under the kind of Haussmann regime. Uh, this is uh, 1876, the construction of the Avenue de l'Opéra. And you can see there, I mean, a lot of debris gets created. Not all of this would be loaded into boats, but Here's another uh, image of the same process. And, and you can see in some cases, they're more paying, paying more attention to keeping things, uh, keeping things neat so they could be either reused or, uh, or sold. So from the beginning, uh, the project, the idea was to separate out the different classes and neighborhoods of Paris. Um, as with other imperial actions, Haussmannization was based on the construction, maintenance, and calcifying of borders and social divisions. Much has been made, of course, of the military strategic impulse of the transformation of Paris. Um, but uh, I think we can see, and um, I think a lot of people agree now that um, both Napoleon III and Haussmann were really more interested in just keeping the, the classes separate and representing that separation visually and architecturally. Uh, and I just have a couple of, a couple of examples. Uh, for instance, uh, Ile de la Cité, which you see here from 1864, um, before the massive most of, the, most of the changes took place. Uh, so here, Haussmann seemed to care less about the actual placement of the poor neighborhoods that were getting moved out. 
than the representation of a new imperial power that would be achieved through views to the infinite, that's these large long boulevards, and grand architecture. So he kept the trappings of the older sovereignty there, a police station, prison, army barracks, court, and church. These stayed in their historic places. They were just cut off from the social fabric into which they had always been woven. The houses were stripped from the walls of the large buildings. The streets and squares around the structures of power were enlarged, making it easier to see the grandeur and more difficult to approach them. This was a new representation of imperial sovereignty, no longer the feudal regime with its paternal connections between the sovereign and subject, which had been represented in the old city by poor housing abutting or very near the church and courts. The new imperial mandate kept the sovereignty, but removed it from the reach of the people, or rather moved people further away from it. The social ties that had made for a sovereign relation were abstracted out of their places. An abstract space of power was created without the burden of actual communal bodies. The people moved out of the Ile de la Cité, but they were still compelled to recognize the power enshrined there. The difference was that now they would come as pilgrims visiting the grand fetish that was imperial power. You can look at La Chapelle in awe, but not live across the street from it. You can see Notre Dame as a symbol of power and authority, as you see here from an 1859 photo, but cannot claim its protection by nestling your house and actions against its walls. That relation had been divided, bounded, and separated. So this imperial dynamic was uh, built into the entire uh, Hausmann um, scheme. That's a kind of imperialism in min miniature or internal imperialism. And it's made manifest uh, in now one more kind of particular transformation, that of the Place d'Etoile surrounding the Arc de Triomphe. So the Arc itself was a monument to the first Napoleon and the first empire. Uh, it's in its interior walls have the list of all of uh, the empire's generals. For Haussmann, however, the architecture of its power, and here we see uh, down the Avenue Diana from 1877, and there's the arc in the, in the background there. For Haussmann, the architecture of its power was meant to be seen, not approached. As with the Ile de la Cité, sovereign power should be awe-inspiring, grand and distant, not a part of everyday social place. Accordingly then, he turned the area around the arc into the Etoile, a meeting, of 12, <clears throat> a meeting point of 12 streets, avenues, and boulevards, all tremendously busy, precluding any sense of easy access to the monument at its center. A person can admire the arc from afar, ideally while moving around it, but it is difficult to approach it in a more intimate way. Everyday life has been shorn from the space. The monument sits like an island in a swirling sea of circulation. As you turn through the great circle of Etoile, you also see the same buildings repeated at each corner, each intersection. <clears throat> no matter where you come from or where you're going, the view is meant to seem the same. Haussmann decreed uniformity of buildings and material for the intersections of Etoile. So at each moment, the imperial vision would be repeated. The experience is disorienting with a center that holds it together, this monumental piece of stone, an unapproachable solidity in the circulating chaos of traffic. The meaning of the arc, power abstracted from the society around it, can only appear at a distance. Up close, connected to it, you see the chinks, you see the dirty stones, um, you see the individual parts and the ill-fitting uh, aspects of it. The grandeur and power of abstracted symbol up close give way to individualization and fractured narrative. Modern imperialism as represented in the Etoile and the Arc is only made a stationary unitary thing when seen from a remove, from the distance allowed by space or time. <clears throat> Either way, abstraction is the key to producing this sovereignty. 
Circulation in the Etoile thus created the effect of imperialism, an abstracted, seemingly unitary entity acting on a single sovereign's will. It's an effect of imperialism. This worked in other avenues of circulation as well, like that part of imperial circulation that tied the debris that we're talking about of Paris uh, to this opposing pole in Algiers, that is the Mediterranean. So as the arc is there and it's produced as an image of imperial sovereignty through its abstraction. So the Mediterranean becomes uh, this space of imperial sovereignty of empire uh, through its circulation. So while meaning was evoked produced uh, in the divisions of imperialism, some of them were more material than others. Some of these divides were more material than others. There really is a sea and there really is a Northern and Southern shore of this sea. So many people have talked about seas as things that connect people, that bring people together, even as they're a kind of complex of seas as uh, Braudel called the Mediterranean. Um, the sea itself, however, as Alexis Wick has suggested is an ideological construct. The unity of the Mediterranean is based on an abstraction of maps, not the direct result of lived experience. An abstraction like the Arc Etoile is what I'm suggesting. The sea as experienced was a single shipping lane in a shore or the creak of a mast as wind filled the sails or the yell of a longshoreman. This is how people experienced the sea. Few people experienced the Mediterranean as the Mediterranean. That unity had to be evoked by empire, by modernity and by the circulation that created those. <clears throat> in the 1860s and all the way through the end of the 19th century, the Mediterranean was really tied together and was made a unitary object by the weaving and bobbing of sailing ships. So the sea becomes a unity um, through division and circulation, through the need for timber and cloth, pitch and rigging to traverse it. Without goods needing to be shipped, without their inland production and consumption, there's no connection, no traversing or overcoming this single harbor. So the massive circulation that ties the whole thing together would not exist without the fact that there are differences around it. So in order to make this unity, to make this imperial unity uh, even between France and Algeria or the unity of the Mediterranean more largely, there has to be the differences around it that make it that one place is the, you know, one place Algeria is the place that produces the wheat and the other place France is the place that turns it into bread. Those differences uh, that then are later evoked to be the constitutive differences of empire in fact, are the thing that make empire able to seem like a system to begin with. Um, so the separation achieved by the sea can only be evoked by traversal of it. There's no single sea that separates people. There are a multitude of experiences that congeal into the image of a sea only through their interaction and then their abstraction. So the story of imperial debris and toxic modernity, it is not only the Mediterranean that comes together through the weaving circulation of ships and sailors, but an imperial space. It's through this weaving action that the material debris of modernizing imperialism in Paris ended up as poisonous fumes in Algerian bakeries. The debris from demolitions would have been brought, sorry, would have been bought by merchants specializing in construction material of which there was a great need in Algeria. The lot in Paris would have been dragged down to the river by the bodily labor of horses and humans and they're transferred to a river barge. The barge would have taken it to Rouen where it would have been loaded onto a larger vessel with other goods and then sailed through choppy seas to Algiers. The dock workers unloaded the cargo, a new construction merchant purchased the lot and then went about selling it to builders in Algiers. Those bits that couldn't be sold because of their degraded condition or low quality were then broken down into smaller pieces, tied up as bundles and hawked as firewood. Some baker desperate for fuel in the midst of crisis bought the bundles and used them in the oven. The lead and the paint covering these sticks of firewood 
then released in the heat of the oven to become poison in the body of a bread eater. So where, to come back to it, where is imperialism or where is the colony, as I've been asking. In 1695, Nicolas de Fer, cartographer to kings and empires, put together an atlas of all the fortified cities of Europe. It's called the Forces of Europe or a description of its principal cities with their fortifications. Each city got its own spread with a detailed and delicate map highlighting the regal aspects of the buildings and fortifications. They were all there, Paris, Rome, Barcelona, Algiers. Yet there it was lodged between Barcelona and Constantinople with its walls surrounding a city on a hill, the port stretching a welcoming arm to the sea. Algiers, for the official cartographer of the empires of Europe, was Europe. So Algiers was or was not a part of pre-modern Europe. Maybe it was. <clears throat> Here in the 1860s, however, Algiers was the Orient, the East, the other. It was the other pole of empire, the mirror of Paris. In Paris, the imperial capital, all was modern and civilized. Algiers, on the other hand, was where modernity had to be brought. But Algiers was also part of the metropole as the three departements of Oran, Algiers, and Constantine had been brought into the fold of metropolitan politics, of course, after 1848. Algiers was also the site of many of the same kinds of urban urban transformations that would mark modernity in Paris. Broad avenues, large squares, uniform facades, and often before the changes in Paris. These started um, as soon as the, uh, the French military arrived um, in Algiers in 1830. Here are some images, and I, I um, hesitate to use them because I don't know their provenance. Um, I found them on uh, The Funambulist, which is a magazine that um, talks about space and. Uh, and things like this, but there is, there is no uh, attribution. But this is supposedly Algiers uh, before, as a representation of Algiers uh, from before the French, and I, it, it at least suggests it. Uh, and here's modern Algiers, and you can see the, the proliferation of uh, uh, straight streets, and actually there, there's a lot to be said about this and the destruction of the old port, the old city that went down to the port. Um, but this idea that uh, Algiers uh, saw some of these transformations at either the same time or even before Paris, um, this, these things that we call in Paris the, you know, the, the birth of modernity, this makes Paris the capital of modernity, uh, long straight avenues, big squares, um, the disciplining of poverty, uh, that was happening in uh, Algiers in the 19th century, uh, in some cases before, uh, before Paris. So why is Paris the capital of modernity and not the second, French, uh, the second modern city of the French empire? Why was Algiers? Uh, not ever regarded as the model of imperial modernity. It's the condition of imperialism itself that produced and necessitated this non-modern space. The upheavals of settler colonialism, the extractive and appropriationist relationship to Algerian resources, the prevailing assumptions about race and health and religion and their tainting qualities, the socio-ecological and political cultural relations that made Algiers the place where cast off Parisian rubble ended up, that was part of imperial modernity of creating the distinction between the inside of modern imperialism, Paris, France, colonizers, and the outside, Algeria, Africa, colonized people. The poisoned bread, the sickened settlers, was therefore a symptom of imperial modernity. This mysterious illness and the cast off rubble of modernizing Paris at its origins provides a view into how modernity was constructed through imperial relations. So the power of a sovereign to interrupt people's lives, a very modern kind of sovereign power, is on display in the reconstruction of Paris. The establishment of a vision of order, that is straight wide boulevards, impressive squares, uniform grand facades, imperial vistas, the material remains of this vision of the modern was physically circulated through the imperial body where it sickened those poor cousins of empire, 
helping to establish the boundaries between metropole and colony, between modern and not modern. <clears throat> the circuits through which this debris coursed were the filaments that bound an imperial space, a particular eco-social system together. Proximity and similarity were important conditions for the creation of meaningful differences. And those differences when repeated, then supposedly defined the imperial realities of metropole and colony, colonizer and colonized. The imperial body had to be integral for the potential poisons to course through its veins. Those potential poisons were actualized as a kind of toxic modernity in Algeria. Uh, I'll stop there, thank you. Thank you, Barack, uh, that, that's excellent. I just wanted to, to thank everyone for uh, taking the time for being here to uh, to listen to Brock's presentation and Adam uh, Brock for giving the presentation and Adam, of course, for being an excellent moderator, though fairly critical vis-a-vis -vis Brock's poor taste in jokes. Um, sort of, I know that we're all zoomed out and I know that we're in the midst of Mesa, so um, we really appreciate uh, you being here today. We um, sort of like, and thanks for taking the time, Brock, for preparing this and presenting. This is an important lecture series for the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. Again, sort of, I just wanna thank Brock and, and Adam uh, for, for being with us and, and thank you all again for, for taking your time. Thanks, Bobby, thanks everybody. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Macrobin Past and Present Podcasts. To see related slides, please visit our website www.themagribpodcast.com. Other episodes are also available on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, visit our Facebook page, Macrobin Past and Present Podcasts. Subscribe to SEMA newsletter at www.sema dash northafrica.org to CEMAT newsletter at www.cematmagrib.org and to Talim newsletter at legation.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode.